Lord, as students are coming back and getting ready for school, some will be leaving. Um, thanks that everything that we do, everything that we are, is subject to your sovereignty and we entrust ourselves to you. Lord, none of us lives to ourselves, and if we die, we don't die for ourselves. Whether we live or we die, we're yours. And it's with reckless and glad abandon that we commit ourselves again to your care. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in 1 Kings 8. If you want to turn there, we'll be sort of parked there for the duration this morning. Years before the the occurrences of the passage in 1 Kings 8 this morning, uh, which regards Solomon, Solomon's dad, King David, had brought up the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And if you remember, back before David, the Ark had been posted in Israel, but during a battle when Samuel, the prophet, was small, the Ark had been taken captive by the Philistines and spent a short journey in the cities of the Philistines. And God judged the Philistines, and so they got rid of it, and they sent it back to Israel. And it had sat in Israel, and it ended up in Kiriath-Jerim, west of Jerusalem. And David, this guy who wanted nothing more than to be with the Lord, brought the ark up to Jerusalem, to his city. And so it had been there, and if you remember, David's dream, his wish or desire was to build a permanent temple, a permanent home for the ark and for God in Israel. And God had said, David, you're not my man for that job, but I'll have one of your sons. Just as David had brought up the ark of the covenant to Jerusalem with feasting and celebration, if you remember, he's dancing and it's a big deal. It's a day of celebration. Years later, a generation or a lifetime later, his son Solomon will do the same thing again. And that's what we'll read about this morning in 1 Kings 8. I'm going to start in the last verse of chapter 7, just so this gets us started in the right direction. Thus all the work that King Solomon performed in the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things dedicated by his father David, the silver and the gold and the utensils, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. And if you remember from the slideshow we saw last week, or the description in chapter 7, along the temple on each side there were storehouses, three stories tall, in which these things would have been stored. Chapter 8, Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the father's households of the sons of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. And by the way, it's already in the same city, but it's being brought up from the lower hill there on the southeast corner of Jerusalem. It's being brought up higher to the Temple Mount, straight to the north there. All the men of Israel assembled themselves to King Solomon at the feast, in the month Ethanim, which is the seventh month. The feast here is almost certainly the Feast of Tabernacles, or ingathering, which is ironic or interesting since this is the time in which God's home goes from being a tabernacle or a tent to a permanent dwelling. Then all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark. They brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and all the holy utensils which were in the tent and the priests and the Levites brought them up. So they're not just bringing the Ark of the Covenant itself, but they're bringing everything that was around it before. So remember there's a tent, and then there's the old, um, both instruments and furniture. There would have been the original 
uh, incense altar that would have been the original table of showbread and all the implements that they used with the tabernacle are brought up with the ark and they're stored there in the storehouses of the new temple. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled to him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen they could not be counted or numbered. So this is a great big procession and the ark is the last thing coming in. The celebration and the throngs are in front, King Solomon and all the people coming in and welcoming the ark before them or behind them. By the way, does this sound familiar? This festival coming into Jerusalem and God's presence following in the tale. This sounds just like Palm Sunday. Then the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the house to the most holy place or to the holy of holies under the wings of the cherubim. And you remember these are the great big statues covered with gold. The wings span the width of the room placed the Ark of the Covenant under the wings of the cherubim, for the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the Ark, and the cherubim made a covering over the Ark and its poles from above. The poles were so long that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary. They could not be seen outside. They are there to this day. There to this day would be when this was written. And you guys remember the picture. The Ark is a box about the size of a chest, and on top of the Ark is the mercy seat, that gold-covered lid, and on that, part of it were cherubim, a small set of statues of cherubim that looked down at the mercy seat. And now this is set underneath a large set of cherubim, also in the same thing. So this area where God's glory appears, as we'll see in a minute, is covered by these cherubim. This is a common theme related to God's presence in heaven or on earth. This is a comment that there was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb where the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. If you remember from earlier comments, the ark, this chest or box, used to contain also besides the ten words or ten commandments from Moses, the ark at one point held a jar of manna from the wilderness wandering and it also held a stick or a, a stick that God had told uh, all the leaders of Israel to put before the Lord. And the one that budded, that would be the tribe that he had indicated to be priest. So Aaron's rod with this, these almond blossoms that had blossomed miraculously overnight were also in the ark at some point. We don't know when they were taken out. We just know that when this is brought up to this new temple, they're not there. You remember the Philistines had the ark for a while. They may have taken them out. Uh, if you read the story... Um, Earlier, too, when the Israelites at Beth Shemesh get the ark, God strikes them down because they lift the lid. They look into it. We don't know if these things were removed at that point. We don't know. We just know that they're not here when the ark is brought up. Verses 10 and 11, it happened that when the priests came from the holy place, they brought the ark in, they brought all the other things and stored them, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Let me read this again. When the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now just in your mind's eye, picture this with, with me. I'm using my imagination here, but if, imagine it from the priest's perspective. If you had brought this ark up, you'd probably know that this guy named Uzzah who'd moved the ark before, 
God had struck him dead because he touched the ark, even though he thought he was trying to spare it from falling over. And then you'd probably also know that these guys in Beth Shemesh who touched the ark, God struck them dead. And so you're one of these guys who with fear and trembling has lifted the ark by the poles and you followed the crowd of celebration into the holy place, the holy of holies, and you've set it down. And maybe you no sooner than set it down than this cloud starts filling the place. And it's not just light, it's not just like a white cloud, but it's a luminous body that starts filling this place. You've just set the ark down. And whatever else you know or don't know, you know that you're terrified that in this cloud, this glorious presence, you know that there's power and you have fear and dread. And so you're getting out of there as soon as you can. It says they couldn't stand to minister because of the cloud. Or if you were one of the priests that didn't set the ark in the Holy of Holies, maybe you're in the holy place and you're filling the lamps. You remember there's 10 lamps along the walls. Maybe you're filling them with oil and lighting them. Or maybe you've set the bread down on the showbread table. Or maybe you've lit the incense at the altar. And you look up and Jacob and Itzhak, they've turned and they're running out of the Holy of Holies. And then you see this cloud come behind them. And you feel the same thing they, they did, which was sheer terror. You know this is God's presence and you get out of there as fast as you can. You can't stand in it. You can't stay put. Or just think if you're a person who's outside with Solomon and you're watching this and you see the guys take the ark in <clears throat> and the, the group of priests goes in with them. Maybe this was like at Sinai or maybe this was like when the tabernacle was dedicated and the cloud didn't just appear. Maybe it came down out of heaven. And then it came in. And maybe you're standing outside and the cloud comes down from heaven. I think, there's a, I think this is probably likely that a cloud descended from heaven and went into the temple. And maybe you're standing outside and you see what the priest can't see yet. You see this luminous cloud that's glorious and it radiates power. And you see it come down and go into the temple. And you think, gosh, what's going to happen? And then you see the priests, these respectable grown men running like ants out of an anthill as the cloud goes in. And they're coming out terrified. And you know what they know now too, which is what? A God has come down and occupied his house. God has come down and taken up residence in his temple. I mean, this, you could, the scene could look at different ways for different ones of us. But it looked something like that. God comes down and takes up residence. Now imagine this with me instead. You're with Solomon and you're in this group. Maybe you're a priest, maybe you're not, doesn't matter. You know that you and the nation have spent seven years laboring with the best materials, the best workmen, the wealth of the nation, the stored wealth of King David from before you. You've labored to put up this house to God, this temple. All the time, all the energy, all the expense, and here it is. Here's the temple. And then you come to this same day, and you bring up the Ark of the Covenant, and you set it down in the temple, and nothing happens. And God doesn't show up. What have you got? You've got a big empty house you've got a meaningless exercise in futility. 
you've got a nice museum or you've got an interesting architectural structure, but you don't have God's house. If God doesn't show up, you don't have his house, you don't have him. And if you remember, the point of all of this was that God would show up, chapter 6 said, and live with Israel. That's the whole point. So when we read 1 Kings and we read the chapters and maybe to the point of redundancy about the materials and the building and the scale and the size and the materials, if we get to this point and nothing happens, we've got nothing. Because the whole point was God. If he shows up, we've got everything. If he doesn't show up, we've got nothing. This day for Solomon in Israel was glorious because it was the end of a matter. It was the end of the whole building process. But it was glorious because God came down and showed up in his house. So it was a day of feasting. Remember, too, if this was the feast of ingathering or tabernacles, which is likely, it was already a time for feasting and celebration and rejoicing, both for God's provision in the past with food, remembering the wilderness wandering, and now that we're in a permanent place, God's house is permanent, we're here to stay. God shows up, it's a glorious day. Kind of as a, a step back from 1 Kings 8 for a minute, I think that this theme of God showing up to live with man, that this is arguably the theme of the Bible. Uh, theologians or scholars normally talk about, if you are looking for a key theme in the Bible in its entirety, that it's the kingdom of God, that, that the theme of the Bible is the kingdom of God. I don't know why that strikes me as a little... Uh, militaristic or something, the kingdom put down one, raise up another, doesn't quite uh, suit me. I think the theme, though, of God living with man and man living with God, that this is arguably the theme of all of the Bible. And think about this for just a minute. When God creates the heavens and the earth, the goal is to put man in the garden. And just think of the context. We've discussed this briefly, but think of this again. Here's the earth. It's this perfect place, this great big planet, this sphere that we live on. Here's the earth. And in the middle of the earth is this much smaller area where God walks with Adam and Eve. In other words, the Garden of Eden is like the Holy of Holies. And God walks with Adam and Eve. God and man live together in this holy place within a holy place. That's the, the end, the goal of creation. A holy place where God lives with man. And then, of course, we got a problem because Adam and Eve sin. So what happens? They're driven out of what? They're driven out of the holy place. They're driven out of God's presence. And what, are, what, what guards them? The cherubim guards the holy place of God, just like those cherubim are in the temple of Solomon. And now the cherubim guards God's glory because man is sinful and can't come into his presence anymore. But that, that was the goal of creation. It was that man would live with God in this perfect place, within a perfect place. God's temple would be the place man lived. Sin comes in, wrecks it temporarily. But what does God do? He picks a man, Abraham, and he says, Abraham, through you and through your descendants, I'm going to restore paradise lost. Paradise was made, it's lost, and I'm going to restore it. And so then what do you see? You see God taking these steps to live with man again. 
God appears to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But when he redeems Israel out of, uh, out of Egypt in the Exodus, what does he do? He has them build the Ark of the Covenant and the tent, the tabernacle, and what does he do? He comes down in this glorious scene in Exodus. His cloud of glory, this cloud that represents his presence, comes down on the tent and fills it. And what does Moses do? He goes in and he meets with God. And Israel knows God lives with us. God said his desire was that I will be your God, you will be my people, I will walk among you, we'll live together. That was the goal. And you see that in the tabernacle in the wilderness. And then you see it again here in 1 Kings. Israel's now settled in the land, and so God has a permanent structure. And what does God do? He comes and he lives with Israel in the land. God's there in the Holy of Holies. There's still restrictions, of course. Only one man, once a year, can go in and actually meet with God, as it were, face to face. So God's there. It's not quite all it could be or will be, but God's still living with man. That's the goal. Think of the Gospels in this context. What do you have in the Gospels? You've got God coming to the holy place, walking with men, with his chosen people, don't you? God the Son, Jesus Christ, comes down to the holy place, his chosen area, his chosen geography, Palestine, the nation of Israel, and he walks with men. God lives with men. Emmanuel, Jesus' name from Isaiah, God is with us again. Jesus, God in the flesh, walks with men in this chosen holy place. And of course, there's another problem. He's rejected and crucified, but of course God has a plan in all of that. It's our redemption. You and I can't get back into the Holy of Holies without God in the flesh becoming sin on our behalf on the cross. So it looks like another defeat, doesn't it? The crucifixion and burial of Jesus, but of course it's not. It's part of God's overall provision for our redemption to get back with him. So the resurrection occurs. And then if you go to the end of the book, Read the end of the story. What do you have again? In Revelation 20, 21, and 22, what do you have? You've got the Holy of Holies, the New Jerusalem. Remember Solomon's temple, the Holy of Holies, is a perfect cube, 30 by 30 by 30. What's the New Jerusalem? 1,500 by 1,500 by 1,500. The Holy of Holies is what? All gold. The New Jerusalem is what? All gold. But in the New Jerusalem, the New Holy of Holies, God's there, and guess where everyone else is? There, face to face with God. And what does the New Jerusalem, the Holy of Holies, looks like? It looks a little bit like Eden. There's a river of life that flows from the throne of God. There are the trees of life. Sounds like Eden. Sounds like paradise restored. In other words, from the beginning, from Genesis creation account to the end of the story, to Revelation, the theme is that God wants to live with man that the Holy of Holies, the place where God lives, is where He wants to invite us to live with Him. That, I think, is arguably the theme of the Bible. It opens the pages of the story. It closes the end of the story. God wants to live with man. In 1 Kings 8, God takes up residence in His home there in Israel. Now, <clears throat> stepping forward uh, 800 years or so, God takes up residence in a different kind of temple after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, doesn't he? Takes up residence in a new kind of temple 
after the resurrection. If you remember, when Jesus leaves his disciples in Acts 1 from the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, what does he say? He says, wait in Jerusalem till you get the promise of the Father. And what's the promise? It's the Spirit. So in Acts 2, verse 1, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. In Acts 2, this description in Acts 2 is the birth of the church as the temple of God. God set aside Israel, and this is the birth of the church. And this description, these words are key. Do you remember when God comes down on Sinai? It's with a violent storm. It's thunder and lightning and wind and a trumpet sound that you couldn't bear to listen to, and fire. And when the Spirit of God comes into this new temple, the church, what we today call the church, it comes in with a violent rushing wind and fire. And what does it do? It fills them, these individuals, these believers, it fills them with what? With the Spirit of God. What happened in Solomon's temple? The glory of God came down and filled the temple. God filled his temple. And in Acts 2, God fills his temple. It's the same thing. It's visible because he's demonstrating to them it's the same thing. God the Spirit is coming down to live in a new temple. And the believers became individually the new temple because the Holy Spirit came in them, filled them up just like Solomon's temple. If you read or take that thought into other passages in the New Testament, I picked a couple, but 1 Corinthians 14, Paul's talking to a local church and he's talking to them about being the temple of God. And the context here is he's talking to them about the spiritual gifts or the special enablings God gives them and the way that should look when they get together. And one of the things he said would happen is this. He said, if you all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, The secrets of his heart are disclosed. He will fall on his face and worship God, declaring what? That God is certainly among you. That this person would come in and they would recognize, if nothing else, that the place they had just met with these Christians, God was there. In Revelation 1, when John gives us the vision he sees in heaven of Jesus, it includes this. He says in verse 12 of chapter 1, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. This is a brief reference to this image in which John's vision of Jesus in heaven is he's standing in the middle of these seven lamps. And he tells us the seven lamps represent seven churches. So the picture is this, God the Son standing in the midst of his church. So we know that on Acts 2, God did, in a sense, two things. The Holy Spirit came down and made individual believers his temple. But also we're told in Matthew, Jesus said, whenever even two or three of you get together, I'll be there in the midst. 
that when the church corporate met together, the Spirit of God was present in a way that was unique, different than just being in us as individuals. So that whether you're thinking of an individual Christian or the church gathered, the Christian and the church are the new temples of God. No different than Solomon's temple. The glory of God comes down and displays itself in this cloud of glory and power in 1 Kings 8 when God shows Israel that he's come down to live among them. And in Acts 2, the Spirit of God comes down and fills these new believers and meets with the church to demonstrate that the temple of God now are people, individuals, those who believe, and corporately the church when the church gathers together. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.15, he's writing to Timothy as Bud, his representative at the church in Ephesus, and he says, In case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how you ought to conduct yourself in the household of God. By the way, you know the term temple just means house. In Hebrew, it's beth or bet or bait. It's the house of God. Paul says to Timothy how you should conduct yourself in the house or the temple of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The church is the temple. In the age that you and I live in, the church is the temple. So that no less than in 1 Kings 8, when the priests or Solomon or the people standing outside saw God's glory come and take up residence in that new built temple, to no less degree and in no less reality, when a person trusts in Jesus Christ, when people meet together in his name, The Spirit of God is there because we have become His temple. His temple. No less glorious. Now I confess, when I read 1 Kings 8, I sometimes think I'd rather be there than here. Because in 1 Kings 8, you see it. And maybe you feel it if you're close enough and you see this glorious cloud. Maybe you you sense the danger And you're terrified on one hand and you're drawn to it on the other. It's palpable. It's glorious. It's riveting. You know, the truth is, like it or not, that the temple God lives in today is kind of like Herod's temple. You remember there's a veil? Not in Solomon's temple, but in Herod's temple there's a veil. And what does the veil do? It it covers God's glory, doesn't it? It doesn't, you can't see it. It's there. But it's veiled. And you know, I think sometimes, sometimes simply by our humanity, and sometimes by our inhumanity, a God's presence in us is veiled. Uh, you know, not necessarily tongue-in-cheek, but Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, that we've got this treasure, the Spirit of God, in earthen vessels, in clay jars. The clay jar is your body and mine. It's your humanity and mine. So that even though it's, it's as gloriously true for you and I that the Spirit of God has taken up residence in us as His temple, His glory is veiled in us. It's veiled. And in the church, it's often veiled. That is to the degree that we represent Christ and live as He lived and as we represent His character, to some degree we could say His glory is revealed. Oftentimes, again, whether it's because of our humanity that we can't get away from or whether it's through our sin and our inhumanity that we do have some control over, 
God's presence in us today is veiled. But it's there. It is still there. And I think that's the thing that we have to remember. We have become the temple of the living God. If we're an individual or if we're a church, we are the temple of the living God. And so, even though it would have been nice to have been there with Solomon and the crew and be at this feast and the celebration and see the cloud come down, the truth is, guys, if you've trusted, the cloud has come down. Paul says in Ephesians 1, if you've believed in Christ, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. He's taken up residence in you. You have the Spirit. You're His home. You know, this says a lot about our conduct. The reason that we're called, Christians are called to holy living is because God lives in us. That's why. It's because we've become the holy of holies and righteousness becomes God's household. God can't look on sin or unholiness, which is mind-boggling when you think of it, that the Spirit of God takes up residence in us and we all sin. Um, I've got a dog. We've got a dog. And she is a great dog. She's outstanding, really, among dogs. She's outstanding. But you know what? She's still a dog. And you know, when she comes up and wants to kiss me on the face, you know what I tell myself? I know where that tongue's been. <laughs> and you're not kissing me on the face. Because she ain't holy. If my crew takes her for a walk into the cemetery where other dogs do their thing, do you know what my dog wants to do? She wants to roll around in whatever has the strongest smell. This is unholy. (laughs) And then you know what she wants to do? She wants to come up and be pet, be worshipped. And you know what? That's hard to do. When I think of God living in us, And then when I go out and sin, I think of my dog wanting to come up to me after she's rolled in that dew and say, just love on me for a while, Mike. Let me kiss you. And I'm thinking, no way, no how. But you know, the Lord in His glorious presence has come down and taken up His residence, made you and I His home. And that's why He says, be holy, because I'm here. And sin stinks. And he doesn't want it. But you know what? Whether you live holy, holy, or whether you feel like your life is characterized by sin, the truth is, Matthew 28, Jesus says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Now I'll tell you, if you read the rest of the story of Solomon's temple, it goes downhill in a hurry. And in fact, if you read in Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11, you'll see that God does something with His glory in this temple. And you know what He does? He leaves. He takes His glory out of this house about 400 years later, and He gives that house over to destruction to the Babylonians. Before it's destroyed, when those Babylonians get to the Holy of Holies, God's not there because He already left. It's not His house anymore. He's not dwelling there. This is the commitment, though, that God has given to you and I as His temple. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And it's amazing to me to think, if you read the story in First and Second Kings or Chronicles about all the things the kings of Israel do 
in their abominations and idolatry, God's there the whole time. He's with them the whole time. It's just before the destruction of the temple that he leaves. He puts up with a lot. And he probably puts up with a lot with you and I too. But when we think about his glory in us, it should be this motivation, this reminder to stay away from that stuff that stinks because the holy God is living with us. And unholy living isn't going to scare him away. He's seen it before, and he's dealt with it. And you know that you and I are in Christ. You're in Christ. When you're born again, you take on a new nature. In fact, John says in 1 John, you can't sin. That is, the part of you that's been born again, as God's child, it can't sin. It couldn't sin if it wanted to, and it can't even want to. But part of that veiling of God's glory in us is the fact that we've still, we reside in this flesh and blood body, still tied to our sinful nature, and so we've got sinful impulses, and we act on them sometimes. But the truth is, God still lives in us. We've got the Holy of Holies. We are the Holy of Holies. And one day, when we see Christ as He is, we'll be free of this earthly tabernacle, this clay pot, and then we'll put on a, a temple covering that looks just like His. It'll be glorious. There'll be no downside to it. We won't, we, considering things that are unclean or impure, wouldn't even be an option. That day's coming. But when you read a description of 1 Kings 8, when God's glorious cloud of His presence comes up and takes up residence in that temple, in that golden temple, most costly thing on earth at the time, remind yourself, that same God in that same glory has come down to take up residence in me. You and I and the church corporately have become the temple of the living God. Let's pray. Father, you are holy and it's a wonder and it's amazing that you would take up residence in creatures such as we are. Lord, thanks that by your doing, we are in Christ and he has become our righteousness and our wisdom and our holiness. Father, thank you that in your glorious plan of redemption, your son has taken on himself the penalty due our sin. And that, Lord, our sins in their entirety have been dealt with so that you're free to come and live in us and redeem us and call us your own. Father, I pray the truth of both the incarnation, Jesus with us, and now the truth that Jesus is in us. Father, that you're in us, manifesting yourself to us by your Spirit, that this, Lord, would be that encouraging nudge, that healthy reminder to walk worthy of the calling. Lord, to lay aside the sin that encumbers us, drags us down, keeps us from being who and what you've called us to. Lord, I thank you more than your blessings to us on this earth that there is coming a day, more certain than the sun rising today, which we'll see you face to face. And we will live with you, Lord, in the holy of holies, the new Jerusalem, face to face with you, nothing impeding or hindering our fellowship. That, Lord, in the consummation of the ages, in paradise restored, will be your people. 
You'll be our God. We'll see you. There will be life and fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And I pray that this holy vision, Lord, of you in us and with us would call us up. Help us to glorify you, Lord, and honor you as those who've been called by the name of the living God. In Jesus' name, amen.